Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. And this week I'm going solo. And what we're going to explore is the world's first language. There's a story in the news this week about how we're still supposedly using some words that cavemen were using. And people have been writing me asking me whether that idea holds up. Well, it depends. We're talking about a new study by Mark Pagel, Quentin Atkinson, the long suffering. He's always putting forth these theories <laughs> that linguists jump all over. Andrea Kalude and Andrew Mead. And what this study's getting at is that Most words, as a language goes through this veil of tears called time, get substituted for by other ones. Most words leach out and get replaced by something else. Some don't. On the ones that get substituted for, an example would be that English king from the 11th century. We now call him Avalrad the Unready because his name in Old English was Avalrad the Unrad. But actually, Rad meant advice in Old English. And so unrad meant he was unguided, not that he wasn't ready, which is something different. There was a word rad, and it was replaced as time went by by other words like counsel and advice. That's the typical story. There's a kind of churn. But then some hardy words do hold on. It tends to be the most common ones, the common core, so to speak. And yeah, a case can be made that people 15,000 years ago were using a word for what that morphed into our own word for what. But the problem is that the word in the language that gave birth to, for example, almost every language in Europe's word for what was probably quo. That was probably about 6,000 years ago. Quo became what via that process that I've been describing over the past episodes of morphing. But let's face it, if we heard some pelt-covered tribesman ask quo, we wouldn't think of him as using the word what. It's not really the same word. It's changed so much. And God knows how much different the word would have been 15,000 years ago. Here is one of my favorite examples from Albanian. So, Albanian is an Indo-European language, and as far as we know, the original Indo-European word for six was swex, okay? You know what the word for six is in Albanian that has descended from swex via this stepwise morphing that we've been talking about? It's just, just, that's the word for six, from swex to just, it can happen, and so s to sh, to j. Okay, that takes care of the j. And then e can become a. Stranger things have happened. The k of swex dropped out. The s became a sh. Never mind about the t in just. But you can go from swex, which of course was in a British accent, even though English didn't exist yet. And then just. 
Well, if Swex can become just, I don't think that an Albanian would think if they could hear somebody in southern Ukraine saying Swex, that that was the same word. So we know that if we could hear cavemen talk, it wouldn't be in any language that we would recognize at all, not any of the words. And so, for example, cavemen would not sound like this. Some of you may have guessed that that was the Russian dub of the Flintstones. For those of you who might not even know what the Flintstones are at this date, because it's been a while, the Flintstones are supposed to be cavemen. Then again, I said not any word would be recognizable, but not so fast. Actually, there are a few words that we can assume the Flintstones would have used. Or we can go further back than that. The Flintstones, it all gets kind of abstract when these people would have existed who are these cavemen that have animal vacuum cleaners and telephones and movie theaters. I mean, where were they supposed to be? Presumably it's 20,000 or 30,000 years ago, but really the first users of human language would have been probably around 200,000 years ago, according to the way some people analyze it. We can know what some of their words may have been. First, mama and papa, believe it or not. Or if not mama, then something close like nana. Or if not papa, then something like baba or tata or dada. Those are words which there is definitely a chance were in the very first language ever spoken. And we know it in a way because And we'll get to how it's not really for this reason. But we know it in a way because the words mama and papa or something like it are bizarrely common in the languages of the world. And so, for example, you know how it goes in French or in Italian. You have certainly mama and then there's either papa or babbo. And so you have all of these mama, papa words. And we could not go without Playing the beautiful O Mio Babino Caro Aria from Johnny Skiki right now. This is Renee Fleming to give you a sense of the word babbo and when you make it diminutive and therefore sweet, so it's daddy. Well, that's babbino. So here we go. Listen to the way her voice just floats. This is an actual human being. So, Italian, Babbo, and lots of languages like that. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, those languages are close to English. And so maybe it's just a matter of a family resemblance. There was some precursor language that happened to have Mama and Papa and it came down. But what about when we go further afield? So in Welsh, Welsh is a language where you have to work to perceive it as an Indo-European language at all. To say, good morning, how are you? You say, borada, sat 
Okay, that doesn't sound like even without all of that smoke that I put into it, that doesn't sound like an Indo-European language. And so we think, well, Welsh is different, but then mom and Todd. But Welsh is Indo-European. What's interesting is what happens when you really do get the hell out of Europe. Swahili, mama and baba. Tagalog, that's the Philippines. It's not Europe. Last time I checked. Nanay, tatay. Okay, yes, the Spanish were in the Philippines, and you think that might have something to do with it, although that isn't it. But Mandarin. Now, we all know that China is not Europe. Mama, Baba. It's as if they know something that we don't. Remember those yogurt commercials, those of you of a certain age, where there were these people who were like 150 years old, and the idea was that they were old because they ate Dan and yogurt. Those people were supposed to be in the Caucasus. One language spoken in that area is called Chechen. And you know what the words are there? Nana and da. It's as if they were listening to Leave it to Beaver and chose those words. But you doubt that that's why it was. Or one Native American language out of so very many. There's one called Koasati, spoken in Louisiana and thereabouts. And you know what the words in Koasati for mama and papa are? Mama and tata. It's uncanny. So you think to yourself, well, that must mean that we can trace mama and papa or something like it all the way back to those first humans running around, not knowing that they were going to birth a species that was going to take over and destroy the world. It's tempting. You want to know what those words were. And you figure, well, OK, we've traced them. But the problem is, why would those words stay so much the same when, as we've seen, it's natural and inevitable of word shapes to change all the time. So, <laughs> Albanian, let's do Armenian. Armenian is another Indo-European language, and the word for six in Armenian is not just as it is in Albanian, but it's vets. So, swex to vets. Why? Even worse, the Indo-European word, Proto-Indo-European word for two was something like dw. Now, you can see how dw became English's two, especially with the way it's spelled. You can see how dw would become something like French's de, Spanish's dos. But you know what two is in Armenian? Erkau. Erkau. How do you get from dw to erkau? It was just step by step by step. By the way, I know you're, you're wondering, you know, how do I know Albanian? And it's because my parents would speak it at home when they didn't want my sister and I to understand. Anyway. The question is, if the normal thing is to go from swix to just, well, then how are mama and papa always the same? How does that work? You know, it's because of, of all things anatomy. Roman Jakobson, who was one, a linguist, two, a genius, and three, dead, is somebody who worked this out beautifully. The reason that mama and papa are so common in languages is something, it's one of those things that it's so obvious that any of us could figure it out, except we're distracted by <laughs> distractions. So, for example, you are an infant and you start making sounds. All infants do. And what's the first sound you're going to make? Well, first it's going to be, ah, because you're just vibrating your vocal cords and your mouth is probably open. That's what babies are like. Now, you're going to kind of play with the ad. And what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to notice that you can keep stopping the ad and then you're letting it go again. What are you first going to stop it with? It's going to be your two lips. So you're going to go, ah, ma, ma, ma. That's the first thing you're going to do. 
Now you're just doing it. There's baby. Now imagine that you are, for example, a mother and junior or Juniet is going ma, 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 ma. What you think that that means you, you think that you're being called. And so you think, oh, isn't that cute? I'm mama. And so you start calling yourself that. And as the child actually learns what language is and understands exchange, you are labeling yourself as mama. Next thing you know, you have that word mama in the language just because any infant, whether they're in Timbuktu or in the Philippines or at Katz's Deli in New York City, no matter where that child is, the first thing it's going to do is (laughs) that is how you get the mama. Now, that's not the last random sound you're going to make. So mama, that gets dull really fast. So you're going to start playing with some other part of your mouth. Is it going to be your uvula, that thing in the back that in cartoons gets punched around? No, that's not the first thing that would occur to anybody. There's nothing ethnocentric about thinking that. It's probably going to be something like your alveolar ridge. It's that thing that you burn if you drink hot soup wrong. It's probably going to be somewhere around there. and so. You start with mom, 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 and then you get the feeling that this mother is thinking of herself as labeled as mama. And part of the human capacity for language is increasingly thought to be that we start labeling in that way. A schnauzer wouldn't get this and a chimpanzee wouldn't get it. It's us who get that, that that thing is mama. Well, okay, then you start doing something else. Mom, mama. Oh, well, that's me, thinks the mother. But then you're going ta 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 ta. Well, who's that? Well, if you're thinking about the labeling, what's the thing that's going to be analogous to mama, but isn't mama? It's going to be that thing in the background. It's going to be that other caretaker. Naturally, it's going to be the father who is ta ta. That's why that's so common. Or if not ta ta, then da da, because a d is really just a kind of t, t, d, t, d. People who speak some languages would have a hard time hearing the difference between those two, t, d. So that's where dada comes from. Both of my daughters have and still call me dada, and it's not because they were instructed to. For example, imagine me saying, oh, yes, call me dada. You know that I didn't say that. They call me dada because it came naturally out of their mouths because I was that thing that mama was not. That's really how it happens. Now, there are variations. And so you might go mama and then start noticing that with your lips, you can not only go mm, but you can go b. Next thing you know, you've got baba, like bobino, or you've got papa or something like that. There are cases, this is perfectly normal, where for some reason, junior's first sound happens to be the t or the d. And so for a while, the maternal figure is the ta-ta or the da-da. And then that thing in the background saying, you have to teach me how to change a diaper, that is mama, because that's the thing that the person did second. So that is why mama and papa are so common worldwide just because of the mouth of the baby and our tendency to assume that the baby is referring to us when often the baby is just playing with their vocal tract because they have nothing else to do. Now, while we're at it, before we proceed to the next thing, here is Omio Babino Caro 
in English, just to give you a sense that opera can be beautiful in the language that you actually speak, despite the fact that Italian has nice vowels. I first heard this spoken in English, and the audience started laughing as soon as the person said, oh, my beloved father. And by the end of it, everybody's heart was warmed because you could understand what she was saying. So here is a famous Australian soprano. This is after World War II. To give it some atmosphere, you can hear the little on the LP. And she is singing, not O mio babino caro. We don't speak Italian. Oh, my beloved father, I love him, I love him. Here's a bit of it. Enjoy. another thing that patterns with ominous consistency in languages it's the shape of pronouns no that's not as boring as it sounds this is what i mean french me moi you toi so m and t spanish me you know what that means and then tu which is you very common but it's not only the romance languages german mich and so there's your I, your me, and then dich, which might as well be tich, because T and D are the same thing. Dich, you. You see this again and again. There's a language called English. You might think that English is an exception because we have me, but then you. But of course, that's a latterly development. And really, you have me and thou in the singular. You started out just in the plural. So me and thou. And you know just from writing that thou is just a variation on what could have been Tau, or what comes out in German as Du, and so on. Once again, you find this in language after language. So you figure, well, maybe it's this European thing, Indo-European. But then there are the handful of languages that are spoken in Europe that aren't Indo-European, that have a whole different Pappy language. Finnish is one of those. And when you're learning Finnish, it can be hard to find anywhere to grab on because the roots are all different. But one thing that's strangely comforting is I, mina, and then you, sina, and s, t, same part of the mouth. They feel kind of the same. And you think, well, hmm, interesting relationship. And so it's the sort of thing that you can just know is coming. Now it's time for a clip. And what it's going to be is I knew when I thought it's about time for a clip, I've got to come up with something. I thought there's going to be some song in French, some bad song called Moi et Toi. And I knew it was going to be sung by some guy in that cigarette tone that apparently many European women think of as alluring. I knew there would be such a song and I was dead on. I was only wrong in the order. Here is a wonderful song called Toi et Moi. And what the guy is saying, I mean, the lyrics, it's truly, it's worthy of Elliot. It'd be just you and me near here or over there without rules or, or faith. We can go when you want to. It's just you and me. Here we go. You know what the guy who sings this name is? Guillaume Grand. 
And so you could think of that song being sung by somebody named Bill Big. That is Toi et Moi. Emily Judds, I hope you are enjoying that. Anyway, this MT thing goes on and on and on. So Yukahir, this is a language spoken by negative 17 people in Siberia. Met and Tet. Are you Turkish? Me either. But if you are Turkish, Ben and Sen and B, think about it. It's just another kind of M, Ben and then Sen, which might as well be 10. You see this over and over again to the point that you wonder, well, why? Because a lot of these languages are not related in any real way, if at all. And you think, well, okay, maybe, you know, languages borrow things. So we've borrowed the word for sushi and words like soldier and pleasure. And frankly, about every third word you're often using are from French. So maybe these pronouns have been shared by languages, like they're passing around a joint or something like that. But the problem is that pronouns don't get shared much. And you can even feel this intuitively. And so, for example, imagine if you're listening to a language being used all the time, and there are certain things you might want to take from it, say from Spanish, something like macho is a word that I don't think we now think of as a Spanish word. It's English. We took that word. And of course, for foods like, you know, tacos and things like that. But imagine English taking from Spanish, even something that you can imagine English needing. Like suppose we needed a polite pronoun. So they've got their difference between tú, the informal you, and usted, the formal. Suppose we thought, well, we'd like to have an usted. You know we're not going to start walking around saying usted can use my umbrella. It doesn't feel right. You don't share pronouns just like you don't usually share toothbrushes. It's not common. So why would there be all of these languages with the same m, t, m, t? It's been supposed And this is clever and is almost certainly true to an extent. It's been proposed that part of the reason for this is that people are modeling this MT distinction on that same alternation between mama and papa or tata. So if you're used to mness having to do with the personal, having to do with the milkle, the breastle, the meal, if that's what m is, then that will lead to a preference for m being the first person pronoun, kind of like me and my mommy, like that. And then t as sort of the next step from m and t being associated with that other thing that's deeply concerned with me, but not quite as much as the mommy one. Well, if, if you think about it, that's parallel to the difference between myself and then you, who I'm talking to, as opposed to the hims and the hers and the its that are on the outside that are not part of our conversation, not part of our current universe. And so you end up having a to form as sort of the daddy pronoun, daddy walking around in the back of the kitchen, wondering just what he should be doing. That pronominal pattern is such that it's possible that these cavemen, and in this case, because this pattern is especially common in Asia and on that tiny little peninsula of Asia called Europe. Europe isn't a continent, should be called that. I More technically, I should say Eurasian. But no, Asia and the continent of Europe. Then maybe the Flintstones would have had an MT form. That is certainly, certainly possible. Then there's one other word that we would not be at all surprised to hear being used by people using the very first language. And that word is, huh? And yes, that is a word. You say it, don't you? Huh? There you go. 
You say it all the time. It's rather alarming how much we say, huh? And there's actually a new book out coming out in September, written by Nick Enfield, who is the author of my favorite grammar of Laotian, because of course I'm always curling up with Laotian grammars before I go to bed. But he has written a book called How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. There are about three particular takeaways from it. But one of the insights in How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation is that worldwide languages are eerily consistent in having a word a lot like huh. So if it isn't huh, then it's heh. Or it's ha, huh, or it's ha, huh, something like that. But it's very common for that informal questioning word to have that shape. It begins with an H, and then there's some vowel that's in the kind of uh, 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 uh space. So not he, nobody has that. It's huh, ha, ha, ha. It's the huh words. It's not that English is huh traces back to some Proto-Indo-European word that would have been something like or something like that. Huh is really what would come out, I guess, if you ran up behind somebody and squeezed their stomach really quickly. It just kind of comes out of you. And that's what people push out all the time when they're asking for clarification, when they didn't quite hear what you were saying, when they're looking for some kind of affirmation. And so, huh is one of those words that we can very much imagine that people back in East Africa, 200,000 years ago, may have been using. What have we learned, Charlie Brown? What have we learned? Well, cavemen did not sound like this. Cavemen also, I can't resist, they didn't sound like this either. This is the Flintstones in not just French, but Quebec French. And so here is Fred. Je l'aime, ma belle maman. What he said is, I love my mother-in-law. I said it. It isn't easy, but I said it. And for anybody who wants to learn how to understand French spoken at speed, I can recommend few things better, other than going to France and probably sleeping with someone, than listening to Les Pierres à Feu. And now you can find them online, listening over and over again, hopefully with a French-Canadian friend or significant other, and learning to understand what in God's name those people are saying. Because then you are prepared to actually function in French or watch Truffaut films without the subtitles, etc. So, notice that he said, c'est pas facile. C'est pas facile, mais je l'ai dit. It's not easy. He didn't say, ce n'est pas facile. You get used to that by watching the Flintstones speak French. So, they did not speak like that. But we can assume that the very first people, once they had developed the language, could watch an episode of Veep and recognize three chunks of meaning in this exchange. This is Selena Meyer's daughter saying something, followed by Selena responding. Mom, what about me? Huh? You know, Catherine is played by Sarah Sutherland. She doesn't get enough credit for a really tough role, and she's Kiefer's daughter. I, I didn't know that until last week. Anyway, the mom and the me and the huh would have possibly erected the mental antennas of the Cro-Magnon men and women that I had Aurora plastic models of back in the 70s. The the female one looked ominously like Raquel Welch, I'm thinking right now. That was my introduction to cavemen. And so they wouldn't have probably understood the what about part, but the mom and the me and the huh, 
they would have gotten something out of that. I know that you want to know whether my parents spoke Albanian at home. To listen to past shows and subscribe, go to slate.com slash lexicon valley. You can reach us at lexicon valley at slate.com. That's lexicon valley at slate.com. Thank you to my long suffering editor, Mike Volo. And I am myself, and I will salute you with Nirupashin. That's goodbye in Albanian. Mom and Dad are fighting. Gabriel Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddler to teens. They answer listener questions. They share their own parenting triumphs and fails. And they talk through parenting issues in the news. Download a new episode every Thursday afternoon in your favorite podcasting software. And go to slate.com slash mom and dad to check out the podcast archives.